Our text this afternoon is Revelation 19, the verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice from the throne came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. After the sermon, let's sing hymn 40, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty that turns many people's heads is often only skin deep. And the pleasures that captivate many hearts are often only excuses for immorality. And what many regard as stability and security in their lives is no more than quicksand. That's a message that the book of Revelation has been trying to, to drum into us, make clear to us again and again throughout the whole book. You see that particularly in the last few chapters leading up to our text where we read about Babylon the Great, who is also known as the Great Prostitute. Who is she? Who is that Great Prostitute? It's not just one person, but it's a power and it is people throughout history found in all places that has tremendous influence She is beautiful, she is seductive, she has intoxicated people with her immoralities. She is false religion. She is money, material things, the economy, culture, media, TV, philosophy, world views, world life views. All things of this world which are very attractive to people and seduce them and draw them in away from the true worship of God. Many people have followed her. 
Many people have become spiritually, emotionally drunk as they committed adultery with this great prostitute and getting absorbed into the evil things of this world. She is good. If she can't seduce you, then she'll overpower you because she's in bed with commerce and business. She also is empowered by the first beast, which is political power and government, able to enforce laws and legislation, which make it very difficult to live as a Christian. We have seen it in our world. We have seen people enslaved to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography, and every form of immorality. Love for money, love for the culture in which we live, has absorbed, has taken over so many lives. And and if you don't yield to it yourself, you will be punished by the great prostitute and all her helpers. You take the 16-year-old in our congregation who's working at McDonald's or some other fast food place. He or she is trying so hard to live out the Christian faith, to say, I will not work on a Sunday, or I will not live the kind of lifestyle that, that other people who work here are, are engaged in sexual immorality and that sort of thing. Tremendous pressure is put on that young person, seduced, ridiculed, and even in danger of losing their job. The great prostitute has done tremendous damage in our world. But thankfully, she does not reign supreme. We read together chapter 18, and we saw that in the end, our Lord Jesus Christ will avenge the blood of the saints, and she is going down to destruction, whereas the church will be gathered, defended, and preserved. She is, as our text says, the beautiful bride of Christ. And sometimes she falls. Sometimes she becomes dirty. Sometimes the bride, the church of Jesus Christ, gets into trouble. But by the power of Jesus Christ's spirit, she always rises again. She is made clean. She is made beautiful, able to live to the praise and glory of Christ, awaiting his return. The passage which we have before us this afternoon, brothers and sisters, will show us that we have nothing to fear in this world as long as we hold on to our Lord Jesus Christ, because in him we are more than conquerors. We summarize our text in this way. The true words of God about the prostitute's fall and the bride's wedding to the Lamb. And we will see the hallelujah choir of heaven, the hallelujah choir of the redeemed, that's here on earth, and the hallelujah choir of those who worship God. In our text, John receives a new vision, and it's entirely different than the one he had in chapter 18. 18 is a a vision of lament and mourning, where the kings of the earth, the merchants, the sea captains, and all those who are involved in the commerce of this world are crying, because the great prostitute has been brought down. She has been shown to be an ugly hag. There is no real beauty in her. No attraction. And all those who have been seduced by her are going to discover just how empty is their lives and their ways. John has a new vision. And in this vision, we hear the Hallelujah Choir singing both in heaven and on earth. You need to capture the exuberance and the thrill, the power and the glory 
of the singing which is before us. John hears something sounding in heaven like a great multitude, and they sing hallelujah. And we all know that word hallelujah. We know maybe even that it means praise Yahweh. It's used many times in the Old Testament. But did you know it's only ever used one time in the entire New Testament? And that is here in our text. And the significance of that ought not to be lost on us. That term hallelujah speaks of liberty, of chains being broken, of prisons being opened up. Israel sang it when they came out of Egypt. Later on when they came out of Babylon. But now we're singing it in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. Liberation. Our chains have been broken. Our prisons are open. We are set free. Maybe you have seen pictures or even film footage of the Second World War when the Canadian soldiers were coming through Europe, through through the Netherlands, liberating people. Everything was in tatters. Trees were broken down, buildings were broken, but at that moment of liberation, the Dutch people came out of their homes and amidst all the brokenness, they were, they were exuberant, they were happy, they were free from the Nazi regime. And that's the kind of excitement we have in our text. Excitement of people whose chains have been broken, whose prisons are opened. And this is what we hear. This is what's being described. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Here we have the great prostitute again, also known as Babylon the Great. As we said, she is false religion. She is the economy. She is our culture. She is the philosophy of this world. She is the secular education system of our world. And she has seduced people from every walk of life. And they become absolutely besotted and drunk and enslaved by her attractions. And if you don't yield to her, she'll use her power to punish you. We see that in Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. People had jobs, they they worked at the local guild, but if they didn't worship the pagan god, they got fired. They lost their job. They lost their home. They couldn't buy and sell. Some were even killed because of their faith. But now Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, says, Enough. I avenge the blood of the saints. The great prostitute, she's going down. She's going to burn. In fact, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever, which is just a, a very clear, emphatic way of saying that in the new heavens and new earth, you will not find the great prostitute. She's going down. She's burning. She's going to the lake of fire. She has no place in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth. So hallelujah sings the heavenly choir. This has to be the angels, because later on we read about the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Hallelujah, sing the angels. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. But what exactly are they getting at here in the context? 
we might want to think of something that our Lord Jesus Christ himself said in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life everlasting. When our world fell into sin, and the red dragon started to roam this earth, and the two beasts came up from the sea and the dry land, and the great prostitutes started to get her hooks in all kinds of people, our God did not stand there powerless. He didn't stand there in, in, in paradise, impotent before this rotten world under the power of the devil. He says, I love my creation. And I love my world. And I'm going to create a new humanity, a new people to be my sons and daughters for eternity. And I will send my son to redeem sinners. And indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ proved how true that was. We remember that this weekend with his death and resurrection, he has saved and made a new world, new men and women washed in his blood and spirit, to live forever to the praise and the glory of God. And that is the power and the salvation and the glory of God. You cannot stop his plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. And his judgments are also true and they're sure. Also think of John 3 verse 16 and what follows. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That reminds us of a theme throughout the book of Revelation, something that often goes unnoticed by people, but the theme of evangelization, of mission work, is very important in the book of Revelation. God stands before the world and says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. O man, why will you die? Repent and live. The well-meant gospel offer goes out to the whole world. A well-meant gospel offer. Believe in Jesus Christ. You will not perish, but have life everlasting. But the justice and the truth of God is such that after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you do not believe, there is no future and there's no hope for you. You go to the lake of fire. But whoever does believe, And we understand it's also done by the grace of God. Whoever does believe will not perish, but have life everlasting. We may be sure God is just, he is true, and faithful with his promises. And at this moment, the 24 elders and the four living creatures break in with the heavenly choir. Now we know from Revelation 4 that the 24 elders represent the believers of the Old and the New Testament. The believers who are now in heaven. Your grandparents, your dad or mom who may have died, your husband or wife, brother or sister, even a child, even a grandchild who has died, is now in heaven, alive and well, joining in with that heavenly choir, singing praise and the glory to God. We hear their voices. It's like a great cloud of witnesses encouraging us to go on to think that even my father and my mother or my grandchild in heaven right now singing praise and glory to God. Jesus Christ has died. 
He has been raised from the dead. He has the victory. And he will gather, defend, and preserve his people. And suddenly the four living creatures break in with the 24 elders. These are, shall we say, elite angels. These are the cherubim. And all together, the cherubim, the angels, all the saints who are in heaven, together sing, Amen. Hallelujah. God, you have broken our chains. You have broken open every prison. Sin has been removed. Death has no more sting or power over us. You have saved us. Even now we are in heaven. And we long for that day as we just sang before our our worship service from hymn 21. Of the day when our Lord Jesus Christ will return in the clouds of heaven with the saints to raise up their bodies, give it back to them, and so we will dwell with God for eternity. Amen. Hallelujah. And now a voice comes from heaven, encouraging believers who are on earth to join in with the heavenly choir, also to be a hallelujah choir here on earth. But can we do it? Will we do it? Do we even want to do it? How do you say to a 16-year-old boy or girl who has been fired from McDonald's because they won't work on a Sunday, how do you say to them, sing hallelujah, praise the Lord? How do you say to a businessman who is before the human rights tribunal because he has, he has dared to say something about sexuality and marriage in this country and he's got a fine of $50,000 staring him in the face? How do you say to parents whose teenage children are in trouble making friends with the world, getting caught up in a lifestyle that's immoral. How do you say to them, sing hallelujah, praise the Lord? Sometimes that's tough to do. But we read in our text that John begins to hear a sound which is like a huge multitude here on earth, Voice like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. That's the, the, the Hallelujah choir here on earth. And that choir just rips with praise and joy. It is absolutely thrilled in the Lord God. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're not afraid. we got something to sing about. We've got something to be happy about. As we read here, For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. That's how believers on earth see themselves, and it's how you ought to see yourself. My brother, my sister, some people think that the great prostitute, she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's ravishing. She can offer you all kinds of things. You can, you can get drunk in a flash, intoxicated by everything she has to offer. But as we just read, Jesus Christ lays her bare. She's like an old hag filled with unclean spirits and carrion bird. You know what's beautiful? You know what's gorgeous and lovely in our world? It is that 16-year-old working at McDonald's saying to the manager, I will not work on Sunday because I belong in the worship services. 
What is beautiful is a college student in biology class in college or university, not pushy, but at a certain point saying, I believe that Almighty God created this world in six days and it did not come about by evolution. What is beautiful is a young married woman who looks at this world and says, what an awful place to raise children, but she has the courage to get pregnant, to have children, and to raise them in the fear of the Lord. What is beautiful is a businessman who is honest and does everything he possibly can to build up the customer or his boss or employee. What is beautiful is a soldier in Afghanistan who says, I am here and I am fighting to put down tyranny, to put down terror, to create a world, to create a society where people may live in peace and there's opportunity for the gospel to flourish. What is beautiful is an old widow or an old widower who does not give up on life but stands in the mainstream of life with children and grandchildren and the congregation and stays active, living to the praise and the glory of God. This is beautiful. This is the bride of Christ, joyful, singing here in this world. She is ready because she has been given fine linen, bright and clean to wear. And we know from the book of Revelation that is a reference to being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. What makes us so beautiful is nothing that we have to offer in ourselves, but it is the joy and the reality of having all our sins washed away in the blood of our Redeemer and being born again by the power of His Spirit, so that we are strong, we are victorious, we are conquerors who can give our lives to the praise and the glory of God. You notice, brothers and sisters, there there is that that two-sided message in our text. Our hymn gives glory and praise to God. We are told we are what we are by grace alone. At the same time we read, His bride has made herself ready. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The bride of Jesus Christ, the men and the women, the boys and girls, are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been born again. They seize what God has given. And in a covenant relationship with God, they take every aspect of their life to be holy, to be righteous, to be to the praise and the glory of God. We are what we are by grace, but now we seize the opportunity and we become responsible and active in serving the Lord. And let's understand very clearly what we're talking about here, brothers and sisters. It's so easy in the church and from a pulpit to talk in extreme terms without sometimes getting to the heart of the matter. On the one extreme, we say, take your life and offer it to God. Beautiful, but what does that mean? What does it mean that I take every thought, word, and deed and give it to the praise and the glory of God? What does that mean? But the other extreme, especially in the book of Revelation, when you talk about huge things like politics and culture, people say what we need to do is be involved in politics, in the media, in the public service, and so on, and we should. We absolutely should. We should try to make a difference and to change the direction of this world. But the victory of the church of Jesus Christ does not come 
by one of us becoming the Prime Minister of Canada and turning this into a pure, beautiful Christian nation. It would be beautiful if it were possible, and we can strive for that. But humanly speaking, it's not going to happen. We're not going to change this country into a perfect Christian nation. We're not going to change TV and the entire media and culture of our land so that it's all sanctified and holy and perfect. We strive for it. We work for it. But that's not the only thing or the ultimate thing that determines what the bride of Jesus Christ is doing here in this world. Let us emphasize again, who is the bride of Christ? But the 16-year-old working at McDonald's, standing up for his faith. The young mother who dares to get pregnant and raise children in this world. The soldier in Afghanistan who has a clear vision of why he or she is there, fighting against tyranny, striving to bring peace even in a place like Afghanistan where simple people can live and have an opportunity to hear the gospel. These are the things that you and I are doing every day of our lives. And every time we concretely say, what does it mean for me to be a Christian right here as a 16-year-old or as a college student or a stay-at-home mom or a widow or a widower, every time we strive to use our lives in obedience to the commandments of Scripture, then, brothers and sisters, we pulverize Satan. And we laugh in the face of the great prostitute. We say, we don't need you. We're not intoxicated by what you have to offer. But I serve Christ. And when we do that, Satan is as powerless as when he stood before the open grave of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of heaven moves on also in the way we live our lives. And at that point, the angel said to John, Write... Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now, the angel's really emphatic when he says to John, write this down. I mean, John wrote everything down. So why emphasize this? And why say these are the true words of God? Are they not all the true words of God? But you see, the angel's trying to emphasize something. What he's emphasizing is this. Do not undervalue what it means that you are the bride of Jesus Christ invited to celebrate the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. We know we're the bride of Christ. We have been washed in His blood. We even go to the Lord's table here twice every other month, right? But we are a bride that is sometimes seduced. We are a bride that can get into filthy things, get into drugs, get into pornography, or gambling, or materialism, or coasting through life without reading Scripture and praying to God. Sometimes we are so dirty, and we fall so much, even as the bride of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would He love us? And yet He does. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And although we go on sinning every day, God loves us in Jesus Christ. He says, come to me. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. God wants nothing more than to put his arms around the bride of his son. With all our dirt, with all the sinful things we've done, with all the times we let him down, he still wants us. He pulls us to his bosom. And he says, I want you for eternity. And one day I will wash away every stain and every tear from your eyes. And then the day will come at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. You cannot sin anymore. Brothers and sisters, that is unfathomable. And do not, do not sell this short. It's why the angel says, write it down, John. And tell people this is true. God loves you. Though you are a sinner, and though you let him down, he loves you. And he holds out the gospel that you may repent and have your sins washed away day after day until the great and glorious day comes. John is so overwhelmed, he falls down before the angel and worships him. The angel says, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, when the angel speaks about the spirit of prophecy, spirit should be capitalized. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of prophecy. The Holy Spirit of prophecy has inspired the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books of prophecy, of the pure Word of God. Put it down in the scripture. It contains the testimony of Jesus who came to die for our sins, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And it is a book for prophets to read. Not just the angel, not just John, but after Pentecost, we're all filled with the Spirit, and every believing man and woman, boy and girl here, who's filled with the Spirit, is a prophet. And we can open that book and read the testimony of Jesus. In other words, brothers and sisters, if we live our lives reading the Word of God and praying, if we are prophets who love the Bible, we're not just talking on a Sunday like this or at the dinner table, but that you, in your own home, in the privacy of your room, maybe late at night, you open the Bible and you read it. You are a prophet who reads the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are the bride of Christ. And it fills you. It fills you with joy, with assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that hymn, that hymn which the saints have been singing in heaven, that hymn which believers have been singing from the very beginning of time, starts to resonate in your heart. It echoes within you. You feel a song coming on. Your own life is filled with a tune and with a melody of singing to the praise and the glory of God. Hallelujah, Lord God. You have redeemed me in the blood of Jesus Christ. I give my life to you and I worship you. What an awesome God we have, brothers and sisters. What an awesome God we have in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.